0: Love, talk Radio.
1: This is BC Radio Live with Philip and Eric. Live online at blogtalkradio.com slash BC Radio. Aloha! Tonight on BC Radio Live, we are going to chat with Bill Dyer, author of From Siberia to America, the story of survival and success. We are also going to chat with the author of Founding State, the Politics, Providence Probability, Awards, and Living Freedom in America, and the editor of The Living And we will spend with Gary Mark, the author of The Haphazard Construction of the Living It is Wednesday, July
2: the 2nd, and this is the Independent State Edition of
1: CC Radio Live. The chat room is now open at blogtalkradio.com slash bcradio, and the live video feed is now running. I am Philip Wynn, button pusher for BC Radio Live and Chief Geek at BC Magazine, and I am joined tonight by Eric Olson and Lisa McKay. Eric is BC Magazine's founder and publisher, and Lisa is our executive editor. Hello to the both of you.
3: Greetings, Philip. How are you? I- Long time no see.
1: Well, yeah, I've, I've been away for two weeks, which is—I I took the opportunity to to rewrite the little intro there, just a touch, you'll note. <laughs> and it, it, it's a little weird, kind of getting back into the routine. Here I am on the holiday weekend, or the holiday week, when most people are traveling and and going away. I'm I'm actually coming back and and knuckling down for for work.
3: <laughs> Such as it is, uh, it's anyway. not all that uh, cumbersome or or onerous. Uh, it's it's a. <laughs> If that's work, then you know it's. Uh, I've re- I've really enjoyed quite a lot getting back into talking to people and doing all these interviews. And man, we've been they've been taken off in the afternoons because we've had a lot of people who can't make the right. the evening uh, time slot. Just had a real interesting one today, um, Kari. I didn't know the pronunciation, of course, until we spoke with her. But Kari Skoglund, a Norwegian heritage. Uh, Canadian-American film director has a really big movie coming out with a bunch of stars, including Ellen Burstyn and Ellen Page, the two Ellens, uh, and, uh, and and a new discovery, and uh, that's pretty exciting. The Stone Angel is is what that one's about. Anyway, just been yeah, all over the map. Had they they uh, they're coming fast and furious, and I always try to direct people inter inter potential interviewees. To this show, the, sort of the flagship show, but a lot of people just can't make the evening, you know, for one one reason or another. And well, we'll,
1: we can put in a, a quick plug: Blog Talk Radio today is the uh, the afternoon show that you're talking about, and that's uh, 3 p.m. Eastern uh, every day of the week, actually.
3: Yeah, ac- and and actually the show starts at two. It's uh, Sean Daly's the host. Oh, okay. that's Calls himself Sean O'Mac, I believe, in that show. I'm not sure what that derives from, but he has the
1: ever-changing last name.
3: Yeah, ever mutating and whatnot. Anyway, he starts at two, and typically he he covers and has other guests, recurring guests, in the two right. to three hour, and then uh, that three o'clock slot is actually when when Don and or Kay usually do a, an a entertainment report. Uh, uh, via a la Glosslip. But but uh, you know we've been slipping in interviews into that time frame because, uh, well, originally it was because Don said, "Man, give me a break here. I'm having to do this <laughs> entertainment report five days a week." And, five days a week, yeah, crazy. And now, and now the uh, the interviews are taking over. She's only been on like once in the last I don't know what five weekdays or something. They're they're really coming in. But what what it really is is it's a testament to how well things are going just you know, with with Blog Talk Radio and and our portion of it in general. People are really, really responding well. We just, you know, it is it is really the norm that we will hear back from, you know, either the PR person who set it up or 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 the interviewees themselves. And they're really, really happy to be able to have a lot more freedom and flexibility and time than they typically get on on mainstream media. Interviews where you know it comes down to sound bites and hey let's all let's squeeze it all in in five minutes that kind of thing and they really enjoy being able to to stretch out and you know we try to do some research and be ready to go and have some some reasonably good questions and, and understanding of what's going on but I think really the difference is and what people are responding to is that we are able to have. Conversations rather than interviews. We're not interviewing them. We're 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 conversing with them, and I think people do really respond to that. And that that's, well, that's what makes I, it a lot of fun.
1: I hope that we can have some conversations tonight as well. Although we're on a bit tighter schedule in the evenings, um, so that that show again is blogtalkradio. dot com slash btr today for Blog Talk Radio today, and you can catch that at two p. m. Eastern. But for now, uh, yes, please. Right into it. We, we do have three guests, and uh, I think all three of them are going to be very interesting. Three uh, fascinating books. So. Yeah, uh, uh, no author evening. Yeah, yeah, we, uh, we, we usually mix it up. So going with three books, three writers, is, uh, is a rare treat. Our first guest tonight is Bill Frusteyer. He has written a book about his life as a Polish Jew during World War II and how he survived as a 10-year-old boy in a Siberian work camp. Uh, to become a very successful businessman in the United States by way of England. The book is From Siberia to America, A Story of Survival and Success, and he is here tonight to talk about his life. Welcome to BC Radio Live, Bill. Well,
4: thank you. It sounds like you have a very exciting station and a very exciting guest, and thanks for having me.
3: Oh, our pleasure. Very few have had the kind of life that you've had, you know, some really genuine uh, heroism and uh, you know amazing uh, escapes from from every manner of danger, all all the worst elements of the 20th century to you know to go on to be a, a success as a capitalist here in the United States, and all of that without bitterness. I mean, how how do you remain so? Sanguine with your, with your view of, of human nature, I, you know, it, it would not be surprising for you to be a very bitter man, but you don't seem to be at all.
4: Well, uh, I guess this is my nature. I'm, I'm very lucky in that respect. Uh, there are two things that happen to you when you uh, are exiled like I was, and I worked in mines, Siberian mines, when I was 12 years old. It either breaks you or makes you. And I know a number of people who can't even talk about their experiences in Siberia, and they hate the Russian people. And my view is that um, the people who suffered most from the communists were not the Poles, were not the Jews, were the Russians. And I actually sympathize with them, and I love the Russian language and Russian literature. And in fact, I married a girl of Russian descent, and we speak Russian at home. Um, so, And the other thing is that I was sent to Siberia when I was 10 years old now I don't recommend that anybody be sent to Siberia uh, but if you do go that's a good uh, age to go because at that point your body has already been formed malnutrition doesn't affect you as much as uh, if you were younger but at the same time you really don't quite appreciate the horror of the situation Um, and obviously there are are big signs that this thing is horrible I mean, one of them, very tragically, my uh, my uh, mother actually lost her rational mind; she went insane, and that tells you roughly what the conditions were like. And she died after four months. But I was very, very fortunate to have a remarkable father who shielded me from all these, from, from many of these problems. Who somehow or other managed to teach me how to pro- how to f- uh, provide food, how to from the forest, and how to steal. In, in communist Russia, your listeners may not know that, um, everybody used to steal, because if you didn't steal, you didn't survive. Uh, so it was a question of, of fighting in the Russian, of the communist authorities. And I somehow managed, hopefully, to emerge stronger. I don't mean physically, but if it doesn't break you, as I said before, you sort of have this feeling, boy, if I survive Siberia, I can survive just about anything. And I was hungry and I had nothing whatsoever. So when I have a dollar, that was a big amount of money when I came over here. So I think hopefully that answers part of your question.
3: Yeah, it 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 does. It's still remarkable that you know, I, I guess it is just a, a a function of your of of your your personal makeup and uh yeah, I just, just from um uh Giving through the book, and, and I, I certainly do want to take the time to, to read it carefully, but I did pick through it. It sounds like your father, I mean, not only being, uh, you know, taking care of you and looking after you and teaching you, but he was also kind of a leader of, that, of the community that you were in as well.
4: Well, this is correct. Uh, we were, uh, there were about 2,000 of us that were loaded onto cattle cars in, on a train in Poland. Um, and what year was that? Just to that get That people... was in 1940. Okay. In other words, just to to back up a little bit, the Germans, of course, invaded Poland in first of September in 1939. That's when the World War II started, not with Pearl Harbor. We managed to escape from them to Eastern Poland, and of course, that was. Occupied by the communists, or they said liberated by the communists. Um, we were then labeled, too long a story to tell in the limited time, but then we were labeled uh, socially dangerous elements. And the, what the Russians do, or the communists do, when they occupy a new territory, either take everybody and disperse them throughout Siberia, like they did in Chechnya or they take people who they think might be uh, their opponents and disperse them throughout Siberia. So we were locked up in cattle cars for four weeks. Um, The joke was those cattle cars were designed for six horses or 30 people, and there were 32 of us literally locked up for four weeks. Uh, uh, Two men every day were allowed to leave uh, to go with two buckets each to bring food. But in terms of sanitary conditions, we were right there. There was a hole in the, in the floor, and that's where, what we did. Um, after four weeks of that, and because we were overrun by lice, which drank our blood, no washing facilities, um, we, allow, we arrived in a town called Irkutsk uh, in eastern Siberia, south of Lake Baikal. After that, we were loaded on a slave ship uh, on one of the big Siberian rivers. That took about five days. One and a half days on trucks, then another eight days on another slave ship. And we arrived at a town called Bodai Town, a little place called Bodai Bo, which as the crow flies was about uh, six, 700 miles from the nearest, nearest railroad stations. But along the rivers, and of course there were no roads over there, it was about a 1,000 miles. And the only way to get there, there were no roads, of course, there was no railroad, Um, The only way to get there was in the summer when the rivers were not frozen and could be navigated by ships, or when they were frozen and they could be used by navigated by trucks. And we were told, here you live, here you'll die, forget about your Poland. But to answer your question directly about my father, at that point we were broken up into smaller communities. And the village where we were sent, a long abandoned village, was about 50 families. And one of the reasons that my father was, became a leader of the community was that he had been to Siberia before. When you live in Poland, it's an occupational hazard. The Russians come in every couple of decades and take part of them <laughs> <laughs> and send them to Siberia. So he was sent to Siberia by the Tsars um, before this First World War. And of course, the conditions under the Tsarist regime were much better than under the Communist regime. Um, so he knew his way around a little bit, so he was helpful. But he was quite a remar- he was a remarkable guy. Uh, he was still there when the Russian Revolution occurred, and uh, of course he didn't like the communists even then. So he had to run from them, and the nearest border was China. So he ran away to China, and this would have been in 1920s. Fortunately, he made his way back to Poland where, where I was born. But yes, he had the experience of the Rush, of Russia. He was the only one among us who spoke Russian. Uh, he was a wise man. He was a quiet man and, and sort of a, almost a little bit shy. And he pulled me through and many
3: of the other people. Wow. Well, you were, it sounds like you were both quite remarkable. That is for sure. Did you have brothers and sisters?
4: No, I did not. I was the only child. And, um, the, uh, and, somehow I su- and somehow I survived. But a couple of other points uh, that may be of interest. What actually, well, a third of us died there, not from being shot, but something like my mother, uh, through insanity, through lack of medical attention, through malnutrition, through bad clothing, uh, just, just died. Um, but in, what saved us was that in 1941, the Germans attacked Russia, and then uh, Stalin wanted uh, Ch- uh, Churchill's help. Um, and Churchill, the Prime Minister of England, of course, at the time, America was not in the war, said, yes, you can have help, but free all the Polish citizens that you uh, deported to Russia. Now, so, so we were freed. Now, what freedom meant was that we were allowed to move about 10 miles <laughs> to the Russian settlement. <laughs> so it was still cold. It was, we still had bad clothing. Um, and we were still hungry. Still no medical attention. But I managed to go to a Soviet school. And I actually, uh, and I, I worked in the mines and also went to school. And the remarkable thing about it is that the schools were excellent. Even in that remote part of Siberia, as I said, a thousand miles from the nearest railroad stations, we had very good teachers. One of the things that the communists do, and they're doing it in Cuba, by the way, is um, uh, that the education is good because that's part of the propaganda machine. The teachers in, under the communists in Russia were not allowed to choose the places where they went after finishing college, which meant that we had teachers from Moscow, from what was then Leningrad, now St. Petersburg, and they were excellent. The curriculum was centrally set, not locally, so everybody had to pass the same kind of examinations. So much so that when I eventually escaped, it's a long story, eventually escaped to England in 1947, I didn't speak a word of English, of course, um, but after a year when I learned to speak English, The other subjects, the other high school subjects, which is what I had in Russia, like physics, like uh, chemistry, like mathematics, I was way ahead of the English kids. Well, I shouldn't say way ahead. I was ahead of the English kids and (laughs) had absolutely no problem uh, passing the examinations. And we actually learned geography, something which is not being taught very much in this country, history. Uh, even foreign literature, I can recite to be or not to be by Shakespeare in Russian wow, <laughs> but, yeah, so that was uh, which is what we had to do right
3: what a, what a, what a bewildering combination of of uh, awful and and, and fortuitous uh, events in your in your life, I think Philip, you had a question
1: yeah, I mean how long did you leave in England then before coming to America?
3: Okay, uh, well, let me
4: just uh, back up. I lived four years in Siberia where I uh, worked in mines, then uh, two years in the European part of Russia, about three or 400 miles south of Moscow, where I worked on a collective farm. Um, getting back to England, I lived in England for nine years, and um, one year, the first year I learned to speak English, uh, such as it is, and then um, the next four years I went to University of London and became an electrical engineer. And then an incredible piece of luck, I went to a training program, and this was just the beginning of semiconductors or transistors or what they are called chips right now. And uh, I was incredibly lucky, uh, a young engineer with a foreign accent, and in England and many people feel the same way here. Unless you have a foreign accent, you are not a real scientist. (laughs) 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 So I was given the full responsibility I was working for a large British company. I was given a full responsibility for making transistors, for setting it up from scratch. And um, amazingly, I actually made the very first transistors of chips in England in 1954, 1953 or 1954. But we were way behind um, the American technology. Uh, and after running that operation for two years in England, and we made transistors for computers and hearing aids and radios, um, I decided to come to the United States. This is where the action was, like many people are doing right now. I mean, many, many scientists who live in America and many PhDs are of foreign birth. And people say, well, that's very bad. That's very bad for the economy. It's very bad for America because there's not enough Americans are doing it, and I say it's just the opposite. It's still, I agree. Confirms, yeah, well, that's right, confirms the fact that this is still the best country in the world. So, so uh, people are attracted. So, anyway, I came here, as I said before, uh, less than a hundred dollars, uh, all my possessions in a small trunk in 1956. Uh, I actually wrote from England, applied to various companies. Uh, Some ignored me completely, but one wired the ticket for me, and I came here in the Boston area. I worked for them for a year and a half, then for another company for six months. And then starting in 1959, I started my first company in Cambridge, Massachusetts, a stone throw from MIT, although I had nothing really to do with MIT, and um, got it going, uh, made special transistors. We had more of them in space and in defense systems than than on Earth here, because as a small company, because Intel was not in business, but there were other big companies. As a small company, the only way we could survive is to make very advanced transistors. And by the way, in my book, I do have a layman's explanation, which most people understand how transistors work, how computers work. Um, Then after four or five years, uh, somebody came around and says, hey, I want to buy your company. So I sold it and started another one, and I did it about ten times. Um, a just, serial entrepreneur. A serial entrepreneur. Uh, I mean, not a huge one, but at the the largest company that at the largest number of employees at any one time was just over a thousand. Which well, is I'd not, say that's pretty big. Not too bad, you know, for No, somebody, not bad at all. <laughs> for somebody who went to school in Siberia, it ain't too bad. And it was I mean, always been, in in uh, New England. Is that where you've been based? Uh, yes, it was always in New England. Although we did have one a branch of one of the companies in the Los Angeles area, and it was mainly in electronics, although some chemical and some material stuff. And our strength, I I'm not uh, I don't consider myself a super manager, um, but our strength always was in development of new products and just keeping ahead of uh, of the rest and I retired about
3: three months ago Wow (laughs) Wow what a tale go ahead Philip
1: well I just unfortunately we are we're past out of time we're actually uh, bumping into some of the other guests and I I, I'm sure we could uh, talk for hours about your life Um, the book is actually split into two parts the first deals with uh, what you've talked about in Poland Siberia Russia and England and then the second actually details your, uh, your business life here in America. Uh, it has obviously been a very amazing life so far, and I encourage all listeners to read about it, and the book is called From Siberia to America, A Story of Survival and Success. Uh, you can find links and more about it on the website at blogtalkradio.com bcradio. I do wish we had more time. Um, thanks very much for talking with us tonight, Bill.
4: Well, thank you very much for having me. I really enjoyed it.
3: Uh, our pleasure. What a fascinating guy uh, and and uh, and terrific book. So is, this is a reissue of the book, is that right, or or uh, it's coming out uh, again?
4: No, it, uh, the the soft cover was published about four or five months ago, the hard cover about a couple of months ago. I actually wrote it about four or five years ago, but, boy, it's a lot easier to write a book than to have it published, even after you find a publisher.
3: Uh, <laughs> yes, okay. I. I get it, then. I, I see where my confusion was. Well, w- hope it does exceptionally well for you, and uh hope you enjoy your retirement, although I don't know if you're going to be able to handle it. You've been so busy your whole life. I know,
4: I know. I'm involved in a lot of other things.
3: I'm sure you are. <laughs> you sound very youthful and, and vigorous, that's for sure. Well, I'm almost 80. <laughs> you You certainly don't sound it. Well, thank you. Thanks very much, Bill.
1: Yeah, I was, I was doing some math there, actually, as he was mentioning uh, his, his age at various times and thinking, what that, that, just, that just doesn't sound right. But
3: uh, Yeah, well, anyway. I was born in 1930.
1: <laughs> well, let's, uh, let's move along. This is BC Radio Live. Eric and Lisa are hosting tonight, and I am Philip. The next question is, how do we think? Are our brains well-organized, hyper-efficient supercomputers or a mishmash of synapses held together by cerebral duct tape? In his book, *Cluge: The Haphazard Construction of the Human Mind, Gary Marcus makes the case for that haphazard construction, and he's here to talk with us about it tonight. Gary Marcus is a professor of psychology at NYU, and his website is garymarcus.com. Welcome to BC Radio Live, Gary.
0: Thanks very much for having me. Hello, Gary. Eric Olson here. How are you? I'm doing well.
1: I, uh, I came across actually a review of your book in Seed Magazine to which I subscribe and was immediately fascinated. And unfortunately, I, I've not yet had a chance to uh, get all the way through your book, but it is captivating. Um, your, your case for mental disorganization is based, seems to be based in large part on memory. It's, a, it's the foundation of, of your, your uh, viewpoint. What is it about memory that leads you to believe our brains are haphazardly constructed?
0: Well, I think memory is a sort of central mistake that evolution made in putting together the human mind. So memory has been around for a long time, for hundreds of millions of years, and it mostly adapted before we were on the scene to getting bits of information very quickly, but not necessarily specific bits of information. It was... Um, evolved to help an animal know is there more food up the mountain or down the mountain, sort of general tendencies. And modern humans need to know a lot of specific bits of information, like where did you put your keys or um, in eyewitness testimony who was it that you uh, think you saw commit the crime. And we're not very good at specific information. We don't remember where we put our keys. We don't remember um, where we parked our car. Um, my favorite example in the book is that six percent of all skydiving fatalities are from people that simply forgot to pull the (laughs) ripcord.
3: And now how do they know that exactly? Um, it's it's a process of deduction. Um, um, so not you not interviewing the, the, uh, no,
0: wait, wait a minute. the deceased. No, you can't interview the deceased, unfortunately, to get <laughs> those data. Um, I think um, you know you calculate what, what proportion died with equipment failure. So I mean, you can tell if the, uh, the parachute was in working or There are some people that didn't take a parachute at all. We assume those are suicides, and you calculate the rest.
3: So I would. Well, that makes there sense. <laughs>
0: Dropzone I think, has some of the data on that.
1: Oh. Yeah, you you also you have some other examples of uh ways our brains let us down. One that I thought was intriguing was was our apparent inability to control our, our eating habits. We make these decisions in the uh the general or the abstract and then very specifically, boy, those those little donuts, they just look so good.
0: That's right. The donuts or, you know, depending on your proclivity, the cigarettes or the you know, the seventh shot of whiskey or whatever it might be. Um, I, I think of human beings as the only species that can really feel chagrin. We're like smart enough to make long term plans, you know, I want to stop smoking, I wanna study harder, I wanna get into a good school or whatever, and then we're dumb enough to abandon those plans at a moment's notice. So chagrin is kind of the human human emotion,
3: I think. Built in frustration, it sounds like to me.
0: It is, and this is um, separate from the memory issue, though it's not completely unrelated. But the reason for that is similar to what Freud said. There, there's an ancient set of ancestral mechanisms that I think work by reflex. They're not just about emotion like Freud talked about, they're just any kind of reflex. And on the other hand, we have modern systems that can make long term plans and, and, and make sort of abstract goals, and they don't communicate very well. And so it's very easy for the for the reflexive systems to just sort of steal steal the steering wheel away from, from the modern system. So I think there's a kind of constant tension.
1: So while while many species may experience frustration at things external to themselves, humans then are, are probably relatively unique in in feeling frustration at our own you know, our own uh, I think so. decisions, our own inabilities.
0: I think so. And then worrying, for example, is a similar kind of thing. So like zebras this is an example from robert sapolsky it's a wonderful example zebras um, presumably don't get ulcers they get tense in some sense they see a lion and all their muscles you know prepare and they split they run really fast um, but it's all sort of short-term worry for them we have long-term worry where it's not just that you get all your muscles ready, your heart races and, and stuff for something that you can solve in two seconds, but this happens for problems that are complicated and are long-term. Like if you lose your job, you might feel that same kind of stress that the zebra feels, but not feel it for two seconds, but feel it for two months, and that can cause heart disease and, and immune problems and stuff like that. So um, another manifestation of these split between the systems is we've really only got one system for coping for stress, and that's about the reflexive system. And then when we ruminate about these long-term problems, we get ourselves into trouble.
3: Interesting. Do you think it's just that we haven't caught up? I mean, do we get too far ahead of ourselves
0: so that? I think the problem's actually tougher than that, um, especially in the case of memory. So a lot of the book is actually about the way that evolution is always building new things on top of old things, and it doesn't have any right. sort of hindsight. It can't say, "Well, let's start over." You know, we built these human beings and they're good at some things but they're way too aggressive. They never listen to each other and let's just start over, right? Evolution can't do that. We don't we're not the product of um intelligent design. Evolution doesn't have a designer. Um, and it just tinkers with what's already there. It doesn't start over. And sometimes when you build new things on top of old things, you wind up in trouble. Um, that's that's the Kluge metaphor that um you know Kluge is a clumsy or inelegant solution to problems like MacGyver in a hurry or something like that. And evolution's like that.
2: Very so, interesting
1: seems to shoehorn things into our brains rather than saying, hey, you know, if we moved this over there, there'd be plenty of room.
0: (laughs) That's right. So, like, our memory systems could have been reconstructed in a different way or constructed in a different way to work more like computers. So in computers, there's a master map that says this thing goes here, this thing goes there. Everything has its place. And so when a computer tries to retrieve something, it doesn't have any problem. It just goes to that place and remembers it but we have to use all kinds of cues and reminders because we don't really know where anything is in the brain and so going back to the skydivers, why do they have problems? Well we blur things together when we see a bunch of similar examples. So like pilots that can't remember one day to the next, did I pull up the landing gear? So they use um, checklists to get around that limitation of the human memory. If we were built like computers you wouldn't need an external checklist. You could sort of keep one internally but we weren't built with that capacity and then the poor skydivers can't use a checklist while they're jumping so sometimes they make Mistake.
1: Of course, human brains don't tend to crash as often as computers too. So maybe, maybe there's something, uh, something that on what you mean that. by a crash, I guess. I mean, <laughs> sure. so there are lots uh, of causing things causing that fuzzy, dime to sur- fuzzy design to sur- survive. Yeah, we
0: don't have the spinning wheel, I guess, but but you know, people do flake <laughs> out. They they, they, for example, become very hostile to their partners over tiny little things, and they, sure. you know, they stop paying attention to the big picture. So there are all kinds of things. Um, my, my favorite term is brain farts. Those are pretty common. You know, you forget the word that you want to say. You, you forget to turn off the stove, and you know those kinds of things. So I don't know if we have the wholesale crashes that, that fits some computers too, but
3: we just have a endless series of, <laughs> of, of relatively, hopefully minor mishaps <laughs> that, that uh, accompany us through life and, and unfortunately seem to get more and more common as we get older, too. Do you talk about that? The, you know, I
0: don't talk about aging too much, but I do talk about what all of us can do about these kinds of limitations. So, I mean, aging makes things worse. I mean, our brains start to break down in the same ways as our muscles and our bones and, and so forth. But my emphasis in the book is sort of everyday things that all of us face and then what we can do about them.
3: Well, beyond well, no. memory, you address belief, decision-making, right. language, and happiness. Would you, you, know, you want to run us through kind of the key points of those? Um,
0: in terms of what we can do about them, or just some of the main, main goofs that we should uh, watch out for?
3: Both, ideally, Both. would be
0: the holistic approach. Well, so let me give you one example. We probably <laughs> okay. don't have time for all of them, but um, in belief, one of the things I talk about is why we're so gullible. Um, and there there are a number of different reasons i go through at least three um, one is that i think belief evolved from perception so when you look out into the world you see something you can trust that it's there um, but when you hear something, you shouldn't be quite as, as trusting. But I think the machinery, again, there was sort of old, new machinery built on top of old. So when you hear something, you tend to take it in and believe it's true automatically, unless you have a chance to think about it later, which is kind of backwards. You'd really like to think about it and then decide whether to add it. But so when the lawyer says, isn't it true that you know you did such and such, and you start to believe it, it's because our belief systems kind of wired up backwards. It's, it's trust first, ask questions later, which I think um, makes us gullible. And then the second thing is that we have what's known as confirmation bias. So um, right. you notice something, you, you kind of believe that it's true, then you notice the evidence that's for that theory you have a harder time remembering or noticing the evidence that goes against that theory my favorite example of this um, again in a sort of um, cynical sort of way is um, the, the war in Iraq um, you know obviously they told us there were weapons of mass destruction we didn't find any um, in 2004 during the election some people did polls and something like 70% of Republican voters still thought there were weapons of mass destruction there was no data to support that um, but you know you could say well what were those little spots on the satellite diagram or something like that so people noticed the evidence for their own theories and they have a really hard time noticing evidence for other theories and then the third thing, the third way that evolution goofed there is that it allows us to reason more or less um, intensely depending on how we feel something about uh, how we feel about something we tend to reason more intensely about things we don't like so if I'm a smoker and you tell me that smoking causes lung cancer then I try to come up with excuses and say well I could get hit by a car anyway um, whereas if I'm a non-smoker and I hear that I say oh yeah I guess smoking's bad for you um, so we kind of engage our brains more against the things we don't like. And the upshot of all of these things is we're gullible. We hear things that we like, we accept them, and if we don't like them, we try harder.
1: So you say. So I say.
0: <laughs> noticing only <the laughs> positive examples. You're a good student. Excellent, excellent.
1: Well, and I mean, it, so I, I rather get the impression of reading through the book that our, our brains are more strange than marvelous, but the, they, they still seem to somewhat impress me. I don't what know if advice? it's more
0: strange than marvelous. I mean I think <laughs> Bold, in please. I think in the book I focus um on the things that aren't so optimal, because there's been a lot of talk in evolutionary psychology about how humans are perfectly adapted to the needs right. of our ancestors and stuff like that. And so this is sort of a reaction against that. This is saying, well, there are lots of things that are good, like our visual systems are great. I mean, we can pick out, you know, like I'm in New York, I can see cars going by, I can identify them, um, you know, even they're a quarter mile away or whatever. Um, so our visual systems are very good at recognizing objects, but there are lots of things that aren't so good. So um, I try to emphasize those. Um, partly to, to give a more realistic picture of evolution and say, hey, evolution doesn't really make things perfect. It just makes them good enough. So that's part of it. And then the other part is the only way we can do anything to improve ourselves as a species is if we admit the limitations that we have, if we recognize those limitations. So even though there are lots of things that are good, I'm not saying we should all throw ourselves in front of a train or something like that. Um, or go if skydiving. Or go skydiving. I'm not recommending that. I mean, based on the structure of my memory, I would never, ever go skydiving. <laughs> Although it's the first time skydiving that, that are okay. So you do it once, you're really focused. You're like, okay, I'm going to tell everybody this is really fun, even though I feel sick to my stomach, and I'll pull the ripcord, and that's it. And it's, it's if you do it many times, that you confuse these things together, and there's no way in hell I would uh, allow myself that luxury. But, um yeah. Now I've clouged and lost my own place in this complicated uh, disquisition.
1: Well, I think we were talking about recognizing your limitations. That's right. If you recognize your
0: limitations, if you recognize the species' limitations, then you can try to do things to help yourself. Um, And I end the book with some suggestions about um, the educational system and how we might uh, teach children about their own limitations, get people to recognize their biases, their
1: problems with their memories, and stuff like that. I think that would be great.
0: Please tell us.
1: yeah, given that it's too late for most of us to be, uh, to be educated as children at least, what are some, uh, some general words of advice you have for adults? I'll give you
0: two examples. Um, okay. One is that it's a very easy thing to do if you just remind yourself a lot, to pay attention to alternative hypotheses. So we human beings are endowed with something that, that someone cynically called make-sense reasoning, as in you see an argument and you go, uh, "makes sense to me, um, without really thinking about, well, would some other argument make sense? We're just not in the habit ordinarily of thinking about, you know, the other guy's perspective and so forth. So just reminding yourself, like a mantra, pay attention to alternative hypotheses, especially when you have an important decision to make. is remarkably effective. There's a lot of excellent data and literature. That suggests it's a very profitable strategy. It's not that hard. It's not something people do naturally, but it's worth practicing. Second example is I was talking earlier about, um, you know, the dieting and stuff like that where you have a goal and it's hard to follow it. The trick there is to realize that the ancestral systems are all about reflexes. The modern systems are are these more abstract things. You have to translate between them. So what you've got to do is you say, well, I want to lose weight. What's the problem here? Well, the problem here is, let's say, when I go out to a restaurant with friends, I stop paying attention to my diet. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to develop a reflex. Whenever that dessert menu comes out and I'm in big conversation, I'm either going to sit on my hands or maybe get up and go to the washroom, something like that. So you build this simple reflex that you can practice, and then you can do that automatically without paying much attention. That will help you with your long-term goals. So I think it's, it's really important to sort of recognize the discrepancy between the long-term system and the short-term system try to figure out ways of tricking the short-term system into doing what the long-term system wants.
3: So you could, like, shriek in horror when the dessert menu comes?
0: <laughs> you could. There might be social, social repercussions, but, you know, you'd stick to your diet.
3: <laughs> they might
0: throw you out. You wouldn't be able to eat any food. It's, you know, it's a complicated way of...
3: You'd have to think, you know, you're balancing that that grand scale, you know. Why am I losing weight? Because I want to be socially acceptable. So then, I my solution better not be socially unacceptable. Wow, you've right. you got me thinking here.
0: Consistency is difficult. <laughs> Gobbling the little minds or something like that. Foolish. Consistency. Now,
3: what do you teach Foolish exactly?
0: Good. I teach um, evolutionary psychology, I teach language acquisition, I'm very interested in sort of the origins and nature of the human mind, so anything that's along those lines, introduction to psychology, anything sort of about how the mind works, how it develops, and so
3: forth. So that
0: all relates pretty well to the book. Indeed, it does. Sometimes I think of the book as being kind of like an intro-psychology course, except usually they whitewash away the limitations of the human mind. So it's sort of like the dirty laundry from intro-psych, which I think makes it a lot of fun to read.
3: Yeah, it certainly makes sense uh, in that regard. Do you you face any uh, doubters in terms of, you know, I mean, you make a, a pretty general a flat, uh, you know, a fiat, a statement by fiat that, that there is no intelligent design. Do you find that there is, do you face resistance well, to that?
0: I actually wrote something on the Huffington Post about that just earlier this week, your, your readers can look it up, um, called unintelligent design, making the argument, um, some of the arguments that we've talked about tonight, saying, look, if they were an intelligent designer, you know, why would people forget to pull the rep corp? and there's a whole lot of commentary there, so you can sort of take a peek later, like 300 people wrote in. Most of the people are pretty sympathetic, I think, um, to the argument that I'm making, but there there are always doubters. I think one thing that you can always try to do is you can say, well, this system doesn't work that well for this, but is there something else that it's optimal for? Um, In the case of memory, I think the doubters have an uphill battle because we have an existence proof of a system that would work better, and that's the memory system that um, search engines like Google use where they combine the advantages of human memory where you can kind of search things with the advantages of computer memory where everything has its proper place. And so, I mean, if I had an opportunity to change my memory for a memory that worked as, as well as Google's, I think it would be an easy choice for
1: me. You, you know, know, I only thought... Is, of,
3: go ahead,
0: I'm at,
1: sorry. At, well, at, as a software engineer, I, mm-hmm. I tend to think of computers as, as far more unreliable than human minds. I think... I, and I would, I would include I, mean, I, Google think <laughs> I think that's
0: a toss-up but i think in terms of memory in particular that, that um, the machines are much more reliable so overall as thinking entities i'd still rather have a human being as a personal assistant than a computer but i think you can use computer reference point, computers as reference points for specific things so their memories do work better i mean um, if i sure. had a choice between a personal assistant and a machine to remember phone numbers i'd take the machine if I had to, you know, have something where there's more of a value call or something like that, I go with the human being. For vision, for the moment, I would still go with the human being. Probably ten years from now, cars will be better drivers than we are. But for for right now, we're still better than the machine. So there's some things we're better at, some that we're not. Um, memory is one where I definitely trust the machine over a person.
1: And, and and over time, it seems clear that the machines are going to continue to get better, whereas or they're certainly going to get better a lot faster than humans do. I think uh, Eric asked uh, a little bit earlier as, as part of a, a different question. Do you see this as something that that may, you know, improve over the course of the next few million years, or do you see the, the Kluge's continuing and evolutionary psychology continuing to mean that we're, we're constantly working against an, an essentially broken system?
0: Well, I think that left to its own devices, evolution probably wouldn't do um, much more to change the this, this species. Um... One reason for that is things like birth control and modern medicine, so somebody can do something stupid now, like um you know ride a motorcycle without a helmet and they might survive because me- medicine might rescue them and so that changes sort of the balance of natural selection a little bit. It's harder to win a Darwin award than it used to be, in other words. Um, <laughs> But but even putting that aside, the cases that I talk about in the book are mostly ones where you can think of something like evolutionary inertia. So evolution is so far in a particular direction that it's unlikely that on its own it would change things because evolution tends to take small steps, and you need you would need to do things that are fairly dramatic to say reconstruct the whole memory system. So I don't think that evolution itself, natural selection itself, would necessarily change things. On the other hand, we're getting to know an awful lot about biology and software design and so forth. And so it's possible that in the not-too-distant future, we're going to start building brain implants and we may um, alter genomes and stuff like that. I think a lot of that stuff's scary, but I think it might eventually happen. And so eventually um, we may remake the species in, in more rational ways, but we'll have to see.
3: I say wire me up, man. (laughs) <laughs> Why are you, well
0: you know I wrote something in the New York Times uh, maybe 2 months ago um a piece was called Total Recall I didn't make the title but it's a cute title um, and it was about brain implants um, sort of like having Google on board and somebody I read it me, somebody wrote to me great and, and said um, all you psychologists are wackos would you want such a brain implant? I thought not. And I'm like, dude, give me a chance to answer the question. I would yeah, love I think to have so. a brain implant. Yes,
3: exactly. I'm
0: totally it. I mean, there's so much of what my professional life involves sort of re- relating different studies to one another. If I could actually remember them when I read them, that would be awesome.
1: Yeah, I'll take one per hemisphere, please. Yeah, <laughs> well, I,
3: I mean, to have that kind of memory, I, I agree with you. The memory is where we really kind of fall apart. You know, I think we are good at a lot of things. We didn't get to talk about language, which, which I'm also really interested in. But, um, you know, the, the memory, if I, had, if I had a foolproof memory, man, I would
1: rule.
0: Well, another <laughs> thing that people don't realize is that a lot of other things follow from the limitations of our memory. So, like, um, here's an example. You ask two people that share an apartment, how much of the dishes do you do? One person says 70%, the other says 60%. Always, I guarantee, you adds up to more than 100%. but why is that? It's partly because it's easier to remember when you do the dishes than when your partner does the dishes or your roommate does the dishes. and It's partly because we're not wired up to compensate for the fact that we're not searching our memories in systematic ways, so If we were optimally designed, you'd say, well, you know, there's a sampling artifact here, and and really, you know, probably if I remember 70%, it's because I don't really notice, you know, the other person. And so all these other kinds of problems with our our reasoning systems, confirmation biases, another example, come from the fact that we can't just search our memory the way that computers do. So once you had that brain implant, not only would you remember things better, but you'd at least have a fighting chance to reason in a more rational way.
1: Wow. Once
3: again, amazing stuff
1: yeah unfortunately we have run out of time but the good news is that everybody can uh, find more of your argument and more of the examples that you uh, give and the advice Uh, the book by Gary Marcus is Kluge the Hazard Construction of the Human Mind and it's available everywhere books are sold including at blogtalkradio.com slash bc radio thank you very much for spending time with us tonight Gary thanks very much for having me
3: thanks Gary great stuff really interesting
1: well, this is BC Radio Live. I'm Philip. And with me, you notice I, I stuck in these little bumpers because it occurs to me that each guest doesn't necessarily call in far enough ahead of their own segment to uh, hear our intro at the beginning of the show. So I'm reminding the guest that's on the phone that I'm Philip, and this is my voice. And with me tonight are Eric and Lisa, my co-hosts.
3: Excellent. Night. The other good reason that's a good idea is you always have the music still too loud, so no one can hear the intro anyway.
1: I think that's only for us on the phone. If you listen to the recording... I hope so. I yeah. <laughs>
3: okay,
1: so our, our next guest has recently waded into an often controversial topic, the role of faith in the founding of the United States of America. The book is Founding Faith, Politics, Providence, and the Birth of Religious Freedom in America, and it is written by Stephen Waldman, who is also the co-founder and editor-in-chief of BeliefNet. His website is blog.beliefnet.com. Stephen Waldman, that's Stephen with a V, and uh, W-A-L-D-M-A-N. Welcome to BC Radio Live, Stephen.
2: Thank you very much for having me.
1: Well, we are, uh, we're running short on time, so let me kind of try to jump, jump right in and, and uh, get the conversation going. Uh, your book doesn't seem to advocate really strongly for, for the view that this has always been a distinctly Christian nation or that it is a distinctly secular nation. Uh, I've seen around the Internet, you know, people arguing about whether you come to exactly the right spot between those two views, but you do, you come down between them. You, you criticize both sides for overreaching, and uh, I appreciate that. Um, your, your book, I mean, was that, was that your intention, was to basically address excesses on both sides?
2: Well, that wasn't really the point. That was certainly one of the byproducts. My real point was that I had the strong sense that the culture wars had completely distorted whatever it was that had actually happened, <laughs> and that religious freedom was one of the great achievements that we have, and yet we had very little sense of how we ended up with religious freedom. Um, and yes, it's true that in, in the course of these very partisan fights, um, people, have, people cherry-picked uh, you know, quotes from every founding father to prove whatever they want, and the, the real story has gotten uh, pretty messed up. I, I think the kind of the overarching of thesis of it is that the, the basic formula that they came up with was very pro-religion. It was it was absolutely to encourage the development of religion, but the radical idea was that the best way of Encouraging religion was to leave it alone Have the government leave it alone Which may sound uh, Obvious now But which was a, a real radical departure At the time From what, what happened And um, you know the, the, A lot of what we think we know about this Has turned out to be wrong Because it's become so colored by the political wars Right well, people, p-
1: assume, people assume for example That it, were, that it was the, the seculars Who fought for the disestablishment of religion, but in fact, in fact, were some of the people who were most religious who fought for the disestablishment of religion. Exactly.
2: I mean, it's a, it was the 18th century evangelical Christians, the Baptists, that were the biggest advocates for separation of church and state. They were, they were sort of the shock troops for James Madison and Thomas yep. Jefferson in in pushing for separation. Uh, right. We wouldn't have it with, without. A, a them. lot of that. Obviously, being, that's not the case now.
1: Yeah, the Baptists had been – they'd faced a lot of persecution uh, over in Europe by uh, other groups, so they certainly didn't want that to repeat. Now, your book focuses on five founders very specifically, um, Franklin, Jefferson, Washington, Madison, and Adams. Um, in, in say, one minute each or one sentence each, how would you define those those five people, those five founders' religious views? Say, uh,
2: well, starting, first, starting different – Crazy different. Uh, the you know Franklin, born a Puritan, became a polytheist at one point, then a, a general deist, and then by the end of his life, he was talking like a Puritan again. Um, Thomas Jefferson, most controversial of all of them, in a in a constant state of rage and anger against Christianity, mm-hmm. thought that the teachings of Christ had been distorted from day one. Actually, went through the trouble. Of cutting up the Bible, pulling out the parts he liked, and pasting it into another volume that basically cut out all the miracles and any signs of Christ's uh, divinity. Um, John Adams was kind of on the of all the founders; he was the most sympathetic to the old way of doing things, uh, of of having a state support the official religion. Um, and, and quite anti-Catholic, that was another thing that kind of came up a lot, in the, you know, just how anti-Catholic the early days were. Right. Um, and then George Washington was, um, you know, everyone claims Washington, everyone wants Washington on their side in, in the fight, and in some ways he was quite religious. He thought that God had intervened in his life, saved his life in battle, and that had, made, had was the reason we won the Revolutionary War. But on the other hand, had refused to accept communion when he went to church. So he sort of frustrates everyone because he's not quite an orthodox Christian, but he's certainly a very religious guy. And, and he the hero of the book is James Madison.
1: Th- that's the hero of the book.
2: Yeah, is James Madison because he was this sort of zealot-like figure who kept popping up. Uh, he helped craft the Constitution. He wrote the Bill of Rights. He wrote the uh, key things in Virginia. And really was the one who kind of came up with the, whole, the mo- most holistic notions of religious freedom in America, which is, as I said, that it's it's not a secular vision. It's a fairly religious vision but as at a cultural level, but that the best way to achieve that was by getting the government as far away from it as possible.
1: Now, how, how do you think, Madison especially, but, but how do you think the founders in general would react if they saw the – The current political cycle, I know that on your blog you've been talking a lot recently about uh, Senator Obama and his uh, political views with regards to faith and his his recent speeches. Um, You know, many people argue that religion is too central to politics today. Others argue that uh, thanks to the nomination process, we've lost all the people with any sort of real religion. and so I, I guess I'm doing. Having studied these five founders, how do you think that that they would ve, that they would react to what we're seeing?
2: Well, first they would probably disagree with each other, and so it's <laughs> worth remembering. That we, you know, we think of them as like a unitary block. And anytime anyone says the found the founding fathers believed blank, you know, you should watch Chawala because they there's no <laughs> such thing as the founding fathers as a as a as unitary block. So on the spectrum of things, I think. Washington and Adams would probably be fine with, with a lot of this religious rhetoric and faith-based initiative, and they tended to be more in favor of the kind of mingling between government and religion. And Madison and Jefferson would probably be pretty uncomfortable with it. Uh, and I, I imagine they would be particularly uncomfortable with the, with the use of tax dollars, like in the faith-based program. Mm-hmm. Um, to help religious programs. They just thought that nothing good would come of that. And, and it was an important distinction they made. It wasn't just, you know, people say, well, they didn't want persecution, and that's true, but they had a more nuanced view, which was that they thought that even well-intentioned efforts to help religion would end up hurting it. Right. So and you then, think that then,
3: comes from cynicism? Was there cynicism involved in that? Well,
2: a little bit, yeah. Sort of cynicism about human nature, uh, or maybe realism about human nature. Um, Madison watched the persecution of the Baptists in Virginia, because that's where he was from, and a lot of it happened right in his backyard. And he felt like if the government got in the business of sort of picking winners and losers um, among religions, one thing would lead to another, and you'd have to develop a police power to you know, regulate the religions and assess them and it was demeaning, you know, and this is sort of literally what happened in a lot of these states is that even in the states that were ostensibly tolerant that said, We will give rights to minority religions, the minority religions had to go through this demeaning bureaucratic process of applying to the majority religion for permission to preach. And so right. even in the cases where there was some element of tolerance it was it was uh led to this lack of equality that graded on them
1: what do you see as as something that we could do as a society now to improve the relationship or uh, limit more further limit the relationship between government and religion
2: uh, I guess that's a good question. I think one thing to, to keep in mind is that just because something is constitutional doesn't make it a good idea. You know, there's. I, I tended to come down as I got more into this sort of thing. On constitutional issues, I actually ended up agreeing more with conservatives and saying, yeah, probably the Constitution allows more of that than than I thought. But that that's not the end of the conversation, that there are a lot of things that you can do that that aren't a good idea, and by that I mean aren't a good idea for religion. You know, I always had this conversation with conservative friends who want prayer in school, and yet they think government messes everything up. So I said, well, let me get this straight. You know, you think government will mess up the health care system, and you think government will mess up the energy system, and you think government will mess up the economy, but you want government writing the prayers? You know, you really think that's going to go well?
1: Yeah, I've um, seen I've seen this play out. Actually, uh, this may be out of left field, but homeschooling in California, I, I used to be involved in years ago, with a group of Christian homeschoolers who would argue on the one side that the state ought to stay as far away from their the education of their children as possible, and argue on the other side that they wanted tax vouchers in order to educate their children. And, right. and my question was always: So, do you think those tax vouchers come with no strings, or <laughs> you know, are you sure you want that government money? Because I'm pretty sure that at that point they're going to want to make sure that, you know, you're actually teaching math, history, English, et cetera, and uh, some of
2: them may not be. Right, and that was, you know, what I, the, the debate I would really love to see if we all had a time travel machine um, <laughs> would be the, a debate between the 18th century evangelicals and the 21st century evangelicals about all this stuff, because they, they came at it completely differently. And the 18th century evangelicals were big advocates of separation of church and state, and a lot of 21st century evangelicals uh, first actually say that it's a myth, that there even is supposed to be separation, and that in any event it's a bad idea.
1: Right, I yeah. It, it, this is a pretty big subject, and I, it actually I think would be a, a lot of fun to talk with you about it at, at, at great length. But um, I'm interested.
3: Just moving real quickly, <laughs> since as, as always we're running out of time. When we have the better the guest, the less the time. Uh, yeah. I, about beliefnet, I, I'm real interested in how did all that come about? Um, I mean, kind of what is what was the founding? Uh, you know, what, what were your founding father? Uh, uh, <laughs> Strictures in setting that up. It's it's a fascinating place, and you've been going for quite some time, and it's very successful. Well, thank you. Uh,
2: yeah, we launched in '99, and the initial idea was, uh, you know, like a lot of these ideas, sort of born of personal experience um, as well as an entrepreneurial idea. And the personal experience was just I was in, uh, I am in an interfaith marriage. we were raising, we had two little kids, and trying to figure out what to do with them, you know, how to raise them, (laughs) both in a religious sense, but also just, you know, in this crazy world with cultural pollution all over the place, Um, what do you do? And so we were looking around and having trouble finding what we needed. And then as a professional matter, I was national editor of U.S. News and World Report. I've been a news magazine journalist for most of my career. And I just had this very strong sense that the mainstream media was really not very good at covering religion and saw that over and over again and and just started to think that this new medium would be able to um, deal with that in some way. That it would be able to either be a clearinghouse for information that people could get in an unbiased way, not affiliated with a religion or particular denomination, or would be a way for people to meet and connect with each other. And, of course, like most web businesses, it evolved a lot as the technology changed and also as we just started to see um, what people really wanted. Uh, So it's it's a bit different than it was when it launched, but we're we're the largest spirituality site on the web now.
3: Oh, yeah. I think you have been pretty much all along. Yeah, I mean, it is a clearinghouse. I I go there quite a bit when I'm seeking more or less unbiased information or at least or at least information that states its bias at least you know because that's a step in the right direction
2: right and a lot of the stuff we have is very is very opinionated but it's it's transparently opinionated
3: exactly you know where it's coming from so that's a big step in the right direction yeah i think it's a terrific service i i really yeah. do it's it's interesting and uh um you know, it's a it's approached from a, a very uh, open perspective. Uh, you know, I mean, you're you're respectful and open toward pretty much all religion without letting it get too crazy. <laughs> I'm just yeah. going over here. I've, Usually, <laughs> yeah. I'm, I mean, I'm looking at the the what you cover, the faiths and practices, and 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 thinking how that. Has changed over time, you know the list to a certain extent. But um, yeah, anyway, no, I, I think it's a terrific thing, and you really found, you know, you found a a hole that needed to be filled, and and you've done it uh, really well. Obviously, or, or you wouldn't still be going. What nine years later?
2: Yeah, yeah. Oh, well, uh, thank you. I appreciate that. And well, th- it is it is
1: time to wrap up. Unfortunately, uh, Stephen Waldman is the co-founder and editor in. Keith at beliefnet.com. His book is called Founding Faith, Politics, Providence, and the Birth of Religious Freedom in America. Uh, thanks for talking with us tonight, Stephen.
2: Thanks so much for having me. I appreciate it. Thanks, Stephen.
3: Really enjoyed it.
1: Bye-bye. Well, thanks again to Bill Frufire, Gary Marcus, and Stephen Walden for talking with us tonight. Uh, thanks also to John for filling in for me the last couple of weeks while I was away. I should be around for a while. I'm Philip Finn, and this has been VT Radio Live. We broadcast live every Wednesday night at 9 p.m. Eastern. Feature the digital slides that participated capturing the watch the live video streams. The convert-to-live broadcast audio archives are available online, or you can get a
2: at Radio Live for a business. Thank you. Until next week, aloha.